I think you have to have the difficult conversations to make the good trouble. What happens when we provide them with some sort of advocacy or resource center? That their hard work was not being met with the resources they needed. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. Today, we're here with Sarah Goldrick-Rab, David Connor, India Rogers, and myself uh, talking about Sarah's work in uh, a wide range of disciplines all focused on bettering the community college experience for students. Sarah, um, you you recently recorded um, another podcast episode that we, I believe, we probably will have aired just before this conversation. And um, that was kind of a, a panel setup. And we actually were hoping that um, our members could get to know a little bit more about you. And actually, I think we're all curious, too. So um, as one of the presidents discussed during that panel, your name is synonymous with these issues of unmet needs among students, especially community college students. Um, so what happened? What, what along your career path or in your life got you so invested in this? Because you've really driven this within this sector. It's, it's a good question. And to be honest, um, I've struggled with this question a little bit because I do at this point kind of breathe this work. And um, I think... I think the explanations go, they certainly don't go to anything like, I, I mean, I wasn't a Pell recipient, right? It's not like I grew up um, ever short of food. Um, you know, I had a busy mom and I ate TV dinners at McDonald's, but that's not what I'm talking about here. Um, you know, I think, first of all, when I fell in love with community colleges, I can tell you that part right away. So when I was a graduate student studying sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, which was the most elite space I had ever been in. And I was there because they gave me a full ride. I picked the school. I picked whatever program would give me a no-cost PhD, okay? And, of course, the Ivy League institution's the one that can do that. And so I'm there um, studying poverty. It's a weird thing, right, to sit in the ivory tower and study poverty. And one day, the man who paid my bills, my advisor, Jerry Jacobs, said to me, okay, so we have a new project. And the project is about this new piece of federal legislation, which was ending welfare as we know it, which was the switch from aid to families for dependent children to um, temporary aid to needy families. And I'm like nodding and going, okay. And he said, well, we have this thought that this policy, which tells low-income women with children that they need to go to work, might have implications for college access and I still don't know what we're talking about here. And he said, look, have you ever been to a community college? And my, my mind immediately went to the fact that I grew up in Northern Virginia and I was educated in a very um, quasi-private public school that was very snobby in many ways. And the way that my counselors talked about Northern Virginia Community College, it was like, that's the place not to go. So I thought, well, no, of course I haven't been to a community college. Why would I do that? Um, and he said, well, you're going to be going to them. And I said, great. And he said, I said, what am I going to do? And he said, you're going to go and you're going to find out what this policy did to these colleges. And the next thing you know, I'm driving through cornfields to Lincoln Land Community College in southern Illinois. Uh, you know, I got to fly into Chicago, but not go to Chicago initially, go to Lincoln Land. And I, 
um, then from there went to the City Colleges of Chicago when I was on the campuses of Malcolm X and Olive Harvey. And then I was in Florida going around Miami-Dade. And for the next year plus of my life, I was on community college campuses all the time. And what I saw there really took me aback. What I saw there was what I say is the real meat of American higher education. You know, this is where the rubber hits the road. These were some of the most committed and hardworking people, not only students, but the people who worked there that I had ever seen. And it was really clear to me that their hard work was not being met with the resources they needed. And as somebody who's interested in inequality and poverty, I suddenly realized this is really a key issue. So I, that got me very committed to community colleges. It got me very angry at my high school counselors, by the way, because I started thinking, what did I miss at NOVA? Over time, I began studying transfer because I think that when people talk about community colleges, typically they start by talking about transfer as if the whole goal is to get out. <laughs> and so for years, I studied transfer. I studied swirling. My dissertation was on swirling. I, we published that book on, on TANF and WIA, the Workforce Investment Act. Um, and eventually, I got an opportunity to study financial aid, which was not something I was thinking I was going to study, but the opportunity presented itself. And it was in the midst of that study that one of my research assistants came back to me very upset and said that while I had sent her out to interview college students, um, both community college students and those at really under-resourced public institutions in Wisconsin, that she had not been ready for some of the responses. And the big response was from an 18-year-old woman who said the problem she was having in college was she had not eaten in two days. And I would say my life turned on a dime, honestly. Because once I really thought about that, which means going beyond being upset, starting to ask the question, is this normal? Is this typical? Is this one person? Maybe this is one person. Let's hope this is one person. And then beginning to learn from the data that it wasn't. I think I really started to see where the hockey puck was going. It was not an issue being talked about. And when you follow that, well, you end up looking like you were ahead. <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing, right? And so I don't think I'm the world's best researcher on this topic by a long stretch. I believe that I was just one of the first to get there and to feel like for it to get addressed, we actually had to agitate and educate on the issue. Mm -hmm. Um, well, actually, so I grew up in Northern Virginia, too, in Loudoun County, and I went to NOVA. <laughs> I went to Northern Virginia Community College. And, um, it, you know, it's interesting. It comes up a lot here because I, I work here. And um, it, what you said made me think of a couple of different points. Uh, but one of them from your session, I remember a college president from Texas said, you know, this is not uh, a pick yourself up by your bootstraps issue because we're talking about people who don't have boots. And my experience at Nova was that um, I, you know, we were, I guess, a, a working middle-class family. So we didn't have college savings and all that. However, uh, I had the opportunity to live at home. Mm -hmm. um, I had help from my parents and they didn't help with, they weren't able to help with tuition and so forth, but food, I had food. This wasn't an issue for me. And it really never occurred to me until we started getting into these conversations, which were driven by your initiatives, mm -hmm. collaborating with you. So um, I just, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the difference there between the students who may uh, not have boots 
and and sort of an average community college student, but the ones who are really in need. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that's great about community colleges. In some ways, um, they're not diverse, they're segregated. I mean, some of them, frankly, are just places where you can find just one class of people. But many of them, you do have the so-called working class and you have the middle class. And the middle class is much more complicated than I think most people make it out to be, including that there's sort of a lower middle, the folks who are kind of just above the Pell eligibility line. And then there's this middle middle where things are really pretty much okay until you get into a really expensive purchase like college. And then there are the folks who, you know, for the most part really are kind of wealthy. Um, you know, when you went to school, I'm going to make a couple of assumptions here, but when you went to school, you know, frankly, even the lower middle class was more okay. Things were fairly stable. You know, people could count on making a little more money each year. And the price of tuition at community college was still fairly low. That has really changed. And so if you look at the latest numbers, say from the NIPSAS, the federal data, we can see that the net price and the expected co family contributions of the lower middle class now look like the Pell recipients looked in 1990. In other words, people are falling. That said, yes, these students do sort of look and sound different, especially when it comes to their basic needs. So a student who, this was Russell Lowry Hart saying, you know, uh, stop talking to me about bootstraps when I don't have boots. You know, some of these folks are the same folks who were trying to claw their way out of poverty their entire lives growing up. And their families were receiving benefits like the National School Lunch Program so that, you know, they knew what it was like to maybe use a food pantry as a child. They came to college precisely because they wanted to get out of that. So when they face scarcity in college, it's not that they don't know how to use a food pantry. It is that it is in some ways deeply disappointing and humiliating even that this still is going on. When they thought financial aid would cover it. When they were told the big goal is do the FAFSA. When we make FAFSA into the thing and then they do it and they verify and they get all the way to the end and they get the letter and they find out how much is not covered, it feels like betrayal. There are also those in the lower middle class now too who are really surprised that community college is not as cheap as they thought. Living at home is still something a lot of people do, but it doesn't look like it used to. So living at home is a proxy for, we think mom and dad feed you and clothe you and pay your electric bill and pay your cell bill and pay your gas. And it is increasingly, yes, I live there, but since I turned 18, mom and dad actually need my earnings. And if I don't have a lot of them, then my financial aid check to help keep the lights on. I might even be in a situation where now I have a couch instead of a bed because I got a bunch of younger brothers and sisters and we're out of space and I'm the adult now so I'm not one of the kids so I don't get the bed anymore. I've seen all of this and I think that we've got to get our heads into this game, you know, and, and it's a hard thing to drop those assumptions when even those of us who work in and love these schools are holding on to images that are maybe even outdated because they're 10 years old. Now, when you started talking about this, was there a difference between how students in these situations and how their institutions received this information? 
Yeah, I mean, there was a big gap, and it's closing a little bit, okay. right? So, I mean, look, we, we the researchers, discovered this issue. I'm going to quote my friend Rashida Crutchfield, who's a researcher at Cal State Long Beach. Rashida once said, the researchers discovered the food and housing insecurity the way Columbus discovered America. Mm-hmm. It was there. The students knew about it. Let's be real clear here. I'm not saying that this issue hasn't grown over time. All the conditions, what I call the new economics of college, that have helped to create this issue have certainly gotten worse. So the numbers are probably much larger than they were, say, in the 1970s, although maybe less than they were during the recession. Who knows? Even though I have a hard time putting the recession in the past tense um, because everybody I know is still dealing with it. Uh, You know, so I think students, though, were saying, yeah, of course I don't have these things. Like, I haven't had these things. Did Nobody asked me about these things, these issues of food or housing. And I was still getting a lot of, well, that, you know, what are you talking about when I would mention this? Um, I know we, we sent around the survey for the very first time, a survey to try to assess how many community college students were dealing with food and housing insecurity. Um, Jihang worked really closely with me to try to do that. And I was naive enough to think that when we first sent membership, the opportunity to do this survey, that hundreds of them would say, sure. And only 10 of them said yes. And Jihang had to do a lot of work to make that happen. And I don't think that was just our students have too many surveys. I think part of that was um, some fear. What happens if we find this out? This isn't exactly the thing we want to advertise. And knowing Sarah, she's going to put it out there. Second, um, I think there were some who thought this is a non-issue. And if it is an issue, it's not an issue we can do anything about. And so I think that's where the biggest evolution has come in that, in that sort of sense. With that in mind, uh, another issue that ACCT has collaborated with you on, um, under the purview of Jihang Lee, uh, when you mentioned Jihang, just to let everybody know, he's our vice president for public policy, um, was research into mental health as yet another one of these unmet needs. Mm -hmm. So for me, that raises a couple of questions. Number one, um, what about mental health? Mm-hmm. Where Where is the research world at this time and where is the action? And then beyond that, what, what else uh, does this unmet needs bracket encompass besides food and housing, mental health? We hear um, sometimes about childcare, for example, and transportation. What, what else is keeping people from getting into and through college? Yeah. So... Let me take the second question first and just simply say it's life and logistics and finances. You know, my my board member, Mark Milleron, has has really come up with that frame, and he's right. Everything that can happen to all the rest of us in our lives, somebody dying, okay? I mean, you would not believe that I have had students apply for the emergency aid funds that I help distribute to cover burial expenses, okay? You know, I there, there are so many things that can happen logistically. So I, I know students whose housing situations are insecure because they need to be in a given location in order to make school, work, and child care happen. So to say that's financial, it is, but it's not merely financial, right? It's also about trying to construct something that is manageable time-wise. Mental health is a very difficult issue and it's difficult in, in, in so many different ways. I mean, one is it's something that a lot of people are embarrassed to talk about still. It's so stigmatized, which I have such a hard time with because 
you know, on TV, we're now allowed to say, oh, I go to therapist, right? And that's a thing. And people spend money going to those things. And so others have started to say, well, yeah, maybe I should get some therapy or some counseling. But then they realize that the people who really get it are paying for it. And the people who really need it but can't pay for it wait weeks, months to even get an appointment. And then they get to see somebody like four times when they needed four years of support. We, the first survey that we did do with ACCT was facilitated by uh, some people who do have expertise in mental health because at that time my team didn't have a survey operation. And so we had a bunch of questions also in there about mental health. And one of the concerns that was raised over time was, you know, colleges saying, so we find out we need mental health services. <laughs> what are we supposed to do? And so we have backed off of asking as much about mental health, in part because that was perceived as a barrier. But we did write a report called Too, Too Distressed to Learn. And what that report finds is, of course, like, it is totally unsurprising, since we are ungated in the community college sector, uh, to say there is a higher incidence of mental health challenges. There's more anxiety and depression. There's more need for all the counseling. And yet there are clearly fewer resources. Mental health is both a cause and a consequence of basic needs and security. So we cannot say the reason you, all these students are homeless is that they're depressed. It's not that simple. There are people who have been left without a place to sleep for a few nights who have experienced traumas as a direct result of that sleeping outside or sleeping in a shelter, which is not always safe. And now they have a mental health challenge they did not previously have. Right? So we got to understand that we could do some preventative work, but we would also have to address these other issues if we wanted to keep this from coming up again later. Um, you know, this is, frankly, this is a national crisis. I think we know this, and I think that, uh, you know, we have to take a hard look at the fact that we put the most health resources right now on, to, uh, among and to the wealthiest people in this country. I just want to take a second to remind you that registration is now open for the National Legislative Summit. The summit will take place in Washington, D.C. from February 10th through the 13th and is a great opportunity to advocate for your institution and hear from members of U.S. Congress, leading political analysts, and other high-profile speakers about the current climate in D.C., recent elections, and legislative issues impacting community colleges. Head over to nls.acct.org to register. Um, and mental health is such a broad spectrum. I mean, we can be talking about clinical depression and anxiety or, you know, a very severe life-affecting um, disease process like mm -hmm. schizophrenia or, yeah. or bipolar disorder. And students may be affected by all of those. Um, I, I asked that at that time, too. I was thinking about some of the um, reaction I heard, the immediate reaction, the shock of being asked to investigate this on colleges. Um, and... It, fear that comes along with it. So uh, in your in the panel that you did, you, um, as we said, spoke with three college presidents. And our membership, by and large, is community college governing board members. I know at times there may be some um, tension. Overall, they work as partners to run their colleges. So when it comes to these 
these touchiest of issues, the ones that may stir fear. And those, frankly, those also include other things like sexual assault and campus security issues, which are, again, all interrelated, right? A mental health issue could, in a tragic situation, become a campus Mm -hmm. security issue. Mm -hmm. So... um, with with boards in mind, what what can trustees do? What should they be thinking about? And how can they responsibly address issues in their community, know about those issues, and work with a president to to get something done at the college? Yeah, I mean, I think this is incredibly difficult. And I, I'm glad that over time I've gotten to spend more time with trustees and listen to the ways in which they've gone about this work. I've spent a lot of time with Russell Lowry Hart's trustee, Annette Carlisle, who's now on the board of the Hope Center for College Community and Justice, because I think community college trustees play this really important role in this country. Um, you know, I think they can do a lot of things. I mean, part of it is 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 exhibiting the sort of leadership to say, yeah, these things are hard. But that doesn't mean we're not going to do them. I mean, since when have community colleges shied away from hard challenges? In some ways, they took on the hardest ones. We need to be incredibly local. We need to be tied to industry. We need to be all things to all people. You know, it's it's much harder to do that than to say, we'll be small and liberal arts and we'll admit 1,400 people in total a year. I mean, really? Like, that's not hard. So, I mean, I, I'm sure it's a little bit hard, but I'm not afraid of that challenge. Um, so... But I have to say, I would not be a liberal arts college president. <laughs> I can't imagine how boring. Um, so, you know, I, I look. They they can they can set the stage. So, any any board that wanted to do this now, only has to look at how well played other folks have have how this has gone right this has not gone in a direction there's been no newspaper article saying shame on that college for having depressed students or shame on that college for having homeless college students because we have worked very hard to explain that this is happening everywhere that this is happening in wealthy places and in poor communities, that this is caused by a series of factors that certainly couldn't be attributed to a single college's leadership, right? That narrative, that explanation is the only responsible way to tell the story. So there's plenty of examples out there to use. The other thing they can do is, you know, to the extent that they choose presidents, I, I want people choosing presidents now who have answers on this issue. I don't mean solutions. I mean answers to the question, how do you think about students' basic needs? Do you have a perspective? Do you have some knowledge in this area? Do you have a willingness to take this on? Because it goes to the core of what we do. You know, if, if you really believe that these issues are not the work of a college, I don't think you're ready to lead a 21st century community college. So, you know, I think that that's a big piece of it. And they can also support the presidents who are trying to learn and allow them to get some professional development, give them some space to do it. And, and you know, and the other thing is they can do some work introducing them to partners. You know, board members are great at saying, you know, I know the United Way or if, the, if the president doesn't already, or I know the head of the food bank, or you know, make those introductions the same way that you introduce the business and industry folks mm-hmm. to the presidents. Yeah, I think it's... Uh I think it's important that you noted that whenever this issue is covered of starting food pantries, it's never a negative thing. I do a weekly newsletter with um, news from ar- across the country, and every you know maybe month or so, I encounter an article about a school that's just started their food bank and how overwhelmingly positive 
the reception of that food bank is, both from the students and the community who now view this institution as an even more valuable resource. That's right. And that's not a coincidence. I mean, I really want to say you can see how crazy some of the other issues have been, like student debt, right? Nobody really sat and thought about how to talk about that issue. And now they're trying to wrap their arms around it, right? But a lot of these folks at these food pantries are being supported by the College and University Food Bank Alliance, for example. They're being supported by Hala for Hunger. They're being supported by Mazone and Swipes. And in California, they're being supported by the Global Food Initiative. And they're getting information not just about how to support the students individually give them food, but also how to talk about it. Because to me, this is just as important as anything else. It's how these efforts will be sustained Mm -hmm. and how they will be spread. If they were talked about in an irresponsible manner or if you didn't do proper communications and outreach, I think we would see a different result. But it's precisely because as as many of us feel in this movement, we don't have time to waste. Like, this is very, very serious. It is, if you know the students going through this, you cannot know them and care about them and not think that you have to pay attention to how we talk about the issue. Mm-hmm. It has to be yeah, a very I, respectful. I mm-hmm. um, spend a lot of time reading the news also. Mm-hmm. And um, before the paper was released, I never saw an article about a food pantry mm-hmm. in a college. And when I did see that, I was like, oh, well, look at that. And I just kept seeing more and more and more. Have you seen any, um, from a data standpoint, um, if that's if that's helping at all, or you know, if that's decreasing the amount of uh, unmet needs of these students? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I don't think any of us think that food pantries can solve food insecurity, frankly, not even the folks running the pantries. The, the food pantries serve a really important role though. They are an easier entry point for many campuses. You know, finding a closet to put some shelving in and put cans on is something they can get their heads and arms around without spending a lot of money. Uh, But it's never the idea that now you're done and that that will actually have the impact. Um, Primarily because it's it's a stopgap measure, it's a band-aid, right? What we're now looking to see is whether other interventions that are more proactive and focus on prevention have effects. So, you know, a year from now, I think we're going to be in a very different spot because as we speak, there are people who are studying what happens when we provide students with access to public benefits, right? What happens when we provide them with some sort of advocacy or resource center where they can come to get food and housing support and public benefits and emergency aid? We have randomized control trials going on, looking at the effects of meal vouchers, looking at the effects of food scholarships, looking at the effects of housing vouchers. And I think what's great is that we're taking this on in the most serious manner, which is to say, these are randomized control trials. Like, we're not kidding around. We need to know. I feel absolutely um, committed to the idea that a college president needs to know that this is more than just something that I think is important. I need to show them, if I'm right or wrong, does, does the, do these efforts reduce food insecurity, for example, and does it then have an impact on something like grades or credits or something else that they're struggling with that is you know, part of their job? It is possible I'll be honest, it is possible that we are increasing people's well-being without changing their academic outcomes. It's possible. It could be that, I mean, I'll give you a a clear example. 
I know some students in one of the studies that we're doing who get their meal vouchers and they take the food and they take it home and they give it to the people they live with. It might then be that they didn't eat the food themselves. They're still food insecure and we won't see changes in their grades. On the other hand, they might have more money to spend if they were actually paying to feed those other people and that could help. So you see there's, and by the way, I think as community colleges that we ought to be able to take credit for increasing people's well-being, not just increasing their chances at graduation rates. And the idea that it's a community effect is the other piece of that. So it's a complicated question. I'm really excited to get to the part a year from now where we know more. Yeah, I didn't actually, I went to a four-year college. I didn't have the um, privilege of living at home. Mm -hmm. I had to work almost the entire time. And um, I went to school out of state, mm -hmm. so it was way expensive. Food was like, I had to work. Mm -hmm. I had to work. I didn't go on the um, meal plan because it was so expensive. Housing was expensive. Eventually, I had to move off campus and into an apartment. Mm -hmm. As a result, it took me way longer to finish college than it should have. How do you respond to people who say, oh, I worked when I was in college. You know, if they can do it, if I can do it, they can do it. Oh, eat top ramen. I had to do it. You know, what's all this about? So how do you respond yeah. to people who say things like that? These are the people in my inbox, right? <laughs> I get emails. I mean, I get extraordinary emails, emails that say things like, Dear Professor Goldrick Rabb, would you please share with the students my recipe for ramen? Add things to it and eat it. I mean, right? Or tell them to get off their behinds and pour themselves a bowl of cereal. I mean, there is a college president out there. He's not a community college president, but there is a college president who says it's not food insecurity. It's food anxiety because they are anxious that they are, they are status conscious people who were upset that their peers are eating sushi while they're eating pizza. Okay, there's so much misconception. So look, first of all, most of the students dealing with this are working. That's the first thing. They're working and they're getting financial aid and they're still short. And it isn't because they're spending a lot of money. It's because work doesn't pay like it used to. And it's because financial aid doesn't pay like it used to. And it's because food costs more. So you just said a couple of things that I thought were really interesting. I mean, first, you worked a lot. The good news is that you could get the hours that you needed to work. The bad news is today there are a lot of college students competing with other people who are not in college for those same exact jobs. And so they are unemployed or underemployed, not for lack of effort, but because they literally can't get the job or enough hours. The other thing you said was that you decided to not be on the meal plan. You're lucky that you could, because now we're seeing more and more colleges making deals with the companies who service their food who say, you all have to be on the meal plan. And the reason is because it allows them to predict more readily, right? Their financial flow is going to be, but it creates real hardship, for example, for students on food stamps who have to spend the limited amount of financial aid they have to be on a meal plan that they don't even want, mm. um, right? So there are so many ways in which the new economics of college are just different than yesterday. And I know it's, a, I know kids these days, is just must be something we've always said for generations, but at some point, we're going to have to stop and just catch up to reality and say, all right, look, time's changed. And the higher education approach to educating people has to also change. 
um, you have a personality. You have a big personality. <laughs> and the personality translates online. Um, for, for people who may not be familiar, um, Sarah has, she has an online persona mm -hmm. that, that people are very engaged with. Um, primarily, I see you through Twitter. And the reason I bring this up now is because, um, you, you know, first of all, people need to get on there and see what you're putting out because that's information that I think anybody who's listening uh, would certainly stand to benefit from. And also to see the kinds of um, conversations mm -hmm. that arise uh, through those exchanges. But also because uh, lately when I see your tweets, uh, they're always accompanied with hashtag real college. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what real college is? I have a feeling it's moving in this direction. And maybe even what what is real college now compared to what? the real college experience may have been in in our day, yeah. well, except me, Jacob, because he's real Let me first young. address <laughs> my online presence, because <laughs> I think that it's probably useful for me to have a place to say this. Um, I have felt that there are some conversations we need to have, and so I understand that we sometimes attract more flies with honey, is that the expression, something like that, than with vinegar. But in some of these spaces, the students need a champion, and they need somebody to insist that things get better. And so uh, actually my friends and my colleagues know that in person I'm a heck of a lot softer than I am online. I think online to be concise and direct and to argue when needed is important. So that said, I think a lot of higher education leaders hesitate sometimes to engage because they think that I'll critique. And I think if you look at my track record, actually, especially with the community college sector, I give them a lot of grace. And I do that because I really think these are the underdogs and they're doing the work. And that gets me to real college, right? I think people need to understand our other hashtag, which is it's not all about Harvard. I am so sick and tired of discussion of lazy rivers, right, and climbing walls, and overpaid faculty, when we have a nation full of people who are literally doing back-breaking work every single day, underpaid, left incredibly vulnerable, you know, with their families and economically, who are treated as if, I mean, they're denigrated. America loves to hate college right now. And I think it's largely because they don't really understand what's going on in real college. And so we originally created the hashtag real college, sort of riffing on MTV's, you know, real world, which is stop being polite and start getting real. That, that was, that, um, now I'm dating myself a little, right? But I really liked that. I think you have to have the difficult conversations to make the good trouble. You know, I think, I think you have to agitate in that way to, to bring some things to light. So real college has become, frankly, a bit of a, um, I guess, a campaign. I sometimes call it a movement, but it's a bit of a campaign. It's a campaign to get this country to understand that real college is marked by under-resourced, cash-strapped students who know Wu-Tang real well and know that cash rules everything around me every day and go to school with faculty who also know that and staff and even college presidents who live that reality. 
we're doing everything we can in every approach that we can to get this message through. So yeah, it's a hashtag on social media. I think you'll you'll also increasingly see it in print media and in radio, et cetera. But I also want you to watch as we work on trying to put this in front of people through movies and TV and maybe my next book. I don't know if I have it in me, but you know, I think there are a lot of unsung heroes doing a lot of very difficult work and Americans appreciate hardworking, Stra- you know, uh, scrappy people, and that's precisely who actually constitutes these colleges. Well, and to be clear, uh, one of the reasons that we decided to do a podcast was we wanted to make information more digestible, but also you'll notice most of our podcasts, anybody who's listening should notice, they're not lectures. They're not meant to be didactic necessarily. Yeah, we want information to get out, but the personality is a big part of it because, um, you know, pretty much anybody that we talk to has passions fueling what they do, and and that's important. Did you not have this personality, we wouldn't be having this conversation and you wouldn't be known to so many people. So um, meaning your cause, the cause behind you. So that certainly was not meant to be a critical remark. I think that is really important. Yeah. I think it's a weird thing. I think a lot of academics really believe that along the same ones who believe that research is objective. Right, like you didn't create your research question. I mean, right? right, like who also believe that you're supposed to be some sort of kind of robotic persona when disseminating the results of your research, like, you're, like you cannot embody your work. Um, those same folks will say, you know, why be out there? Why have these things? And why put your heart into it in that way? I don't understand how you think you'll be effective if you aren't going to be that honest with people. Right. We need to. I I talk about all kinds of things. I talk about the fact that my husband went to community college. I talk about the fact that my grandfather, you know, was on the GI Bill. I talk about the fact that I'm worried about the price of college when my kids grow up. Right. I don't talk about the fact too often that my cat, my kids have a cat named Pell because that's a little (laughs) weird. Um, (laughs) Right. But like if you don't know those things, then you really can't quite get why I would push as hard as I do, right? And I also have to say, the students are living their lives with the same intensity, right? And I think that's the other piece of it, is when I look at a student, if, if that student has given me the privilege of actually sitting there and talking to me about their lousy living situation, and how they slept in their car last night, and somebody pulled a gun on them and woke them up, and they're traumatized, and all of this, and they're gonna give me all that for me as a researcher? boy, I'm not going to just give them back a journal article, right? I'm going to give them back whatever it takes to do the best to change their life, even if I can't hand them the cash to get into a house. That's the job in my view. Uh, The one lingering question I have is uh, what's now and what's next? And and even if I could uh, ask you, it's almost a job interview type of question, Five years from now, ten years from now, um, what what do you envision actually happening? And then what, with a somewhat realistic um, spin, but idealistic, what would you love to see change within the next five or ten years? Yeah, I mean, I think there's actually room for lots of change. I was very um, happy with the results of the last election. Um, in part because there's just a lot of fresh blood, right? There's just a lot of energy. And I think um, 
next month or in maybe the month after that, the U.S. Government Accountability Office is going to release the first ever report on campus food insecurity. It is going to affirm what we have been saying. And I think it's going to inspire a lot of legislation. And I think that's very exciting. I hope that we will see sincere efforts to expand access to public benefits for college students. I hope that we will see sincere efforts to give the colleges some resources they need to get ready to do this work. As an example, some of them need money to support the technological advances in order to accept SNAP on campus. Uh, some of them need to hire social workers. Right? Some of them need a little bit of time and space to develop a relationship with the local housing authority so that they can work together to create room for the homeless college students. They need that support, and I hope that we will see that. I, I fully expect we will, frankly. Um, I actually think, you know, one of my things that I'm told is pie in the sky uh, is, is that the National School Lunch Program could be expanded to include community colleges. You know, I, uh, Jihang and I smile about this one, but I actually think this is real. And I've spoken to a number of folks who see wins for this, not only on the side of education, but also agriculture, who could see this being a possibility. Uh, you know, that's, that's a five to seven year kind of range to see just a growth of supports. Um, I also think, you know, over a decade, decade plus, we might also see significant changes to how we do financial aid. And I think it's important because the current system was built with the idea that only a few people would need aid and they would be the kinds of people who had the resources to actually get through all the nonsense. And at the end of the day, we'd give them a whole heap and a lot of money making the nonsense worthwhile. Mm -hmm. It wasn't built for right now. And it's broken in, I mean, simplifying the application Sure, okay, but what happens at the end of the day when you still don't get enough money? So we have to upend this thing, and we're going to have to realize at some point the financial consequences of not doing so. So the fact is that college attainment rates will not be able to, to rise. They will start to fall, in my view, um, and we will see you know, business be unhappy, and we will not see the innovations that we saw of the 20th century, and we will see people stuck in poverty, and we will be paying the, their bills as taxpayers. So, you know, if we can get our heads around something like making community college free and maybe a couple of years at public universities as well and recognize that we don't have to view that as a threat, um, but rather view it as simply an acknowledgement of the literally national need for that talent, uh, you know, that would be, that would be a, a huge achievement. I get the sense that you will have inspired a lot of people. So where do they go for more information about everything yeah, that you're we're doing? We're working on trying to make the information as useful and accessible as possible. So at this point, um, I'd say go to two websites. One, the first website is our Real College website, which is realcollege.org. Um, and you can find all kinds of information. You can find information on how to survey your campus uh, on their basic needs uh, of your students. You can find information about our next conference. We hold an annual conference focused only on the food and housing issues. Uh, and we also have information on there for students, including student activists, uh, for additional resources for them. Right now, we're looking for them to tell their stories of their activism and how they're changing the game. We're also creating a space for the students who do have the struggle narratives to also help us to better understand what's really going on out there, which I think is important. Over time, we're also going to be building out more materials for faculty and staff. Um, at, at the Hope for College, with a four, 
uh, the number four, hopeforcollege.com, that's where you go to find more of the research studies, to find uh, more indication of the different research projects that we're working on, uh, to find ways to connect with my team, that sort of thing. So I think both of them are important. And as you said, yes, I'm on Twitter. Hope for College is on Twitter. I am. I also run a um, two different Facebook pages where we keep uh, people abreast of all of sorts of issues that are going on. And we don't just post and say, this is good. We post commentary. And I think that that's a space also for people who want to critically think about the issues that are happening right now. While the challenge of tackling basic needs and security on your campus may seem like an insurmountable task, I think it's important to take away from this conversation that you, an individual, really can be the first voice that speaks out and catalyzes a change that has the potential to tremendously help students on your campus. We'll see you next week.